For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you doing? Have you been enjoying these last few episodes all about materials? If you haven't listened to the episode before this one yet with Amanda Johnson, I recommend it. It's all about the current sustainable materials landscape, what's hot, what the big issues are and what the future looks like. And the episode before that, number 187, is also required listening. It's with vegan activist Emma Hawkinson, and it looks particularly at the cruelty inherent in the global leather industry and its very terrible environmental impacts. Both Emma and Amanda point out that it's generally misleading to talk about hides as a byproduct of the meat industry. That particularly coming out of South America, it's huge business and big companies are making piles of money out of the skins. It's simply not true to say that if we didn't make shoes and boots out of this leather, it would go to waste. But as with everything in sustainability, it's never purely black and white, right? So while that is true, it's simultaneously true to say that in smaller scale farming, and in places where local traditional supply chains have been breaking up, hides do often go to waste. And also that there's huge variation in farming scales and practices and approaches across the world. Next week, in the last of what I'm seeing as a sort of series, a mini-series, we're going to hear from a regenerative farmer and author, Sarah Langford, about soil and biodiversity and animal agriculture and how it can be beneficial to the land. But today... I'm bringing you this super interesting interview with a young British accessories designer turned local leather supply chain builder, Alice Robinson. I met her at last year's Future Fabrics Expo. With her business partner, Sarah Grady, Alice runs Grady and Robinson, a startup that's trying to rebuild the local leather supply chain in the UK in a totally traceable way. So it's all about connecting regenerative farmers with processing and vegetable tanning right in the UK onshore. Their goal is to offer a product that's fully traceable to its farm source and made entirely in the UK and biodegradable at the end of its life. And that's a big ask because the industry has pretty much disappeared in Britain. And if you're an emerging handbag designer, as Alice was when she was studying at the RCA a few years ago, and you want to buy single origin leather locally, well, it's very difficult. That didn't sit well with Alice, so as you'll hear, she decided to do it herself. Now, this is so full on. I expect it's going to freak some of you out, but that's okay. For her graduate project, she bought a sheep from five miles away from her rural Shropshire home and then documented its journey from the field where it lived, through its slaughter, through to the tanning process and her accessories production. And then she did it all again with a cow, a bullock. Early next year, she's got a book coming out. It's called Field Fork Fashion Bullock 374. And it's all about that single origin journey to make a handbag out of an animal. Now today, Grady and Robinson's been working with the accessories brand Mulberry and the Institute for Creative Leather Technology at Northampton University through this government-supported R&D project. And they're trying to figure out a way to finish leather at a commercial scale in the UK with ingredients that are known to be sustainable and biodegradable. Do you feel freaked out about this idea of Alice going to the abattoir to deal with the skins and then making her handbags out of a cow that she'd met personally? 
I mean, for me, it comes down to this. If you eat meat or fish or wear leather or other animal products that you buy in a sanitized way from a supermarket or, I don't know, net a porte or a clothes shop, you get to be totally disassociated from the processes behind their production. Someone protects you from all that. You don't have to think about the abattoir. You don't have to think about the tanning process. You're basically, I don't know, it's like you're cocooned in this fake disconnect from how the stuff that you consume was produced. I think it's valuable to ask yourself, could you do what Alice did? And if not, can you give some thoughts and respect to the people who do do that so you can benefit? If you don't like it, why not? And if you're vegan and you've opted out of this, then that's a choice that I absolutely respect. But if you do still consume leather or meat, I think you shouldn't get to opt out of looking into how they're made. It's about taking responsibility. I always think this about meat, don't you? Like you can buy a chicken fillet in a, I don't know, neat little plastic packet in the supermarket. You don't have to think about it walking around. You don't have to think, could you wring its neck and pluck it? And I know this is confronting, but let's be confronted because I think, yeah, the closer we are to our producers, if we knew more about how farming worked and how the systems worked, I believe we'd have a different relationship with what what we eat and use anyway. There's a lot in this, so I can't wait to hear what you think. Please do get in touch with me. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, as you know, at Mrs. Press. And now let's hear from Alice Robinson. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast, Alice Robinson. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Me too. And I love that we're doing this in person. We're in your house, but we met at the Future Fabrics Expo in London. And we had this long conversation about what you're doing with Grady and Robinson and the importance of and difficulties of keeping the different processes around material production local and traceable. In your case, it's leather production in the UK. I feel like it's a conversation we don't hear very much about. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a industry I thought I was ever going to find myself in. My background was in women's wear and then accessory design. And I just sort of stumbled upon leather and was completely captivated by it as a material, mainly because there was so many questions I wanted to ask and I could find no answers for them. Mm. Um, and sort of the more that I've dug in over the years and now most recently starting a business with Sarah Grady, we've really found just how difficult it is to do things, perhaps not the way the norm is in the leather industry. All right, tell us about that then. Who's Um, Sarah? So Sarah is my business partner and Sarah had been working in America in a region north of New York City called the Hudson Valley for 10 years at a non-profit agricultural organisation which helps new entrant farmers, sort of trained them up and they were able to, through different programs that they run make sure that value was brought to all parts of the animal and the farming enterprise so they worked with chefs and food professionals to make best value of the offal and the bones and blood and through butchery we met in 2019 and at an agricultural conference in Cornwall and which is not a very fashion place to be no it's not but actually I the first time I went to the conference in Cornwall, I was um, being interviewed by Sarah Moa and oh, wow. which so was the- a very fa- sort of a very fashion conversation to be having because I was talking about a recent piece of work I'd done for an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum 
called Food Bigger Than The Plate. I remember that I did go to it. It was looking at, obviously, the connections between what you eat and how it's made. But you created a, a collection for that from a single cow. Is that right? I did. Well, he was, it was a male cow, so it was a bullock, and created Collection 374 to greater understand sort of what's the extent of one bullock, one full-grown beef animal in the UK that is bred for meat. And what does that look like in terms of this fashion context that we're all used to of of beautiful shoes and handbags? And what did it look like just on a sort of basic level? What did you make? I made three pairs of shoes, two bags and two coats. Wow. And then small leather goods as well. And then I used the horns from the bullock to make the buttons and I used the bones to turn into buttons as well. And so I was invited to this conference to talk to a collection of farmers and growers from the area from the perspective of a designer working with leather. And the chef there was one of Sarah Grady's best friends and overheard me sort of babbling away about traceability in leather and farms and told Sarah, oh, you two are going to have a lot in common. She had had her own questions around what was happening with the hide and went on her own journey to try to see how she could connect that part. And the one thing that she found after quite a long time there was that the hide just disappeared and that that was a really substantial part of the animals that they were raising with such care. And so... But when you say disappeared, you mean as in they were destroyed and no one talked about it? So... They were disappearing. The abattoir that they were using did have a hide collector. So they were being collected and disappearing into an anonymous commodity stream. Oh, so they could still be used, but they couldn't be traced. Yes, so they could be used, but the farmers didn't know where they were going. All right, so just give us a little quick kind of pitch on what you're doing with Grady and Robinson. You're not at the moment making products. What are you doing? We're building new supply networks within the UK to connect British farmers that are growing their animals on pasture to keep the traceability of their hides to produce leather in the UK so that we can work with brands and designers and they can have a choice and knowledge of the provenance of their materials. We started with a small grant from the Princess Countryside Fund which supported us in a pilot during the pandemic to work with a group of farmers that are part of a certification body called Pasture Fed Livestock Association, which certifies for the rearing of animals 100% on pasture. And are you working with big brands? On the top of my head, I'm like, well, who makes fancy leather goods that we associate with Britain, even though they may well make them overseas? Burberry, Mulberry, I can't think of more. What would they be? Mulberry have been very supportive Oh, good. Since we started, they had made their own commitments to raw material sourcing in the near future, and um, they've been incredible people to work with so far. And as a part of... I made that up, by the way. Oh, so right. you are working with yeah. them. Good on you. Yeah. So as a part of the London Design Festival, we are sort of a small launch for us to show the whole process and what the quality of the material it is we're able to create. And so we have provided leather to a range of brands and designers for them to create product from. And including in that will be Mulberry and New Balance and Otis Ingrams and small artisans throughout London, Charlie Burrow, Bill Amberg, um, wow. Ali Capolino. Oh, I remember Ali Capolino. Yeah. Fantastic. New Balance. Yeah. That's amazing. So incredibly 
Mulberry and New Balance both have factories still in the UK that produce. So New Balance have a line called Made in England and Mulberry still do 50% of their production in the UK. And they invited us down to their Somerset production facilities and it was just absolutely incredible. I had no idea that their upcycling and restoration of all of their bags is so incredible. I've never seen anything like it. You can take your bag back there that's 70 years old and have new hardware put on and it turned inside out, cleaned out and sent back to you. Well, that was a family business, Mulberry. I've forgotten his, maybe he was called Mulberry, but anyway, his first name was Roger and he started making belts in the 70s in the UK. Actually, we do have this heritage of fashion and leather goods manufacturing in this country. Yeah, we do. And, And there's definitely a real interest for those companies to want to have a greater connection to where their raw materials are coming from, especially within the British Isles, especially within, I mean, New Balance is based up in Cumbria and Mulberry's based in Somerset to have very highly populated with farms. And it's strange to think that those dots aren't quite connected where two industries that are wanting to move in a more sustainable direction and work in ways that are less polluting and more ecologically sound aren't connected because the one benefits from the other. All right, I want to start with some context. If people don't actually know what tanning is and what it's for, We need to tan hides, otherwise they will rot, right? So what kinds of materials have been used in the past to tan hides? Historically, there's been uh, many methods. Urine. um, (laughs) I was going to hear urine, but it was a big thing. (laughs) It it was. If you read about the history books about this, then uh, the Arno, where all the tanneries were in Italy, it all stank of wee. What else did they use? Brains, different sorts of minerals, alum, tree barks, leaves. That was the most popular way. The use of vegetable tannins, so barks and leaves, they're really rich depending on what type in tannin content and on different parts of the world have more native trees that mean that chestnut or cabracho or mimosa or oak bark can be put into liquid and turned into a bit of a tea and that tea seeps into the raw hide and eventually over time depending on the strength of the tanning content of that soup will turn it into leather. You've got to scrape off the hair if that's the way you're going to go and the fat and all the gunk. Yeah first you need to get rid of the fat and flesh and then you have to lime them so that the fibre structure opens up and the hair can fall out. So tanning it is a process that skins go through so that they cannot degrade when affected by water. But also, isn't it to remove, is there also a process where they have to remove all the fat and hair? You need to lime it. So you need to put it in a lime solution. And, and then scrape it. And then scrape it off. Or you've got to open up the molecules first um, to get the hair to drop out essentially and so if you didn't tan a hide it would rot yes right okay i know that tanning hide goes back to prehistory yeah i mean it's the production or it wasn't production back then but the transformation of an animal's skin to something that could clothe a human and protect a human is completely integral to human civilization ice age men were covered in bovine hides and sheep and deer and 
used for all different purposes, whether that was sort of on the body or around the legs or on your feet. Through history, there's been different methods um, of how to create something that can be termed leather, whether that's using brains or tannins. (laughs) Brains? Brains. Don't want to say brains. But is it true? It is true. Yes, for sure true. There are apparently the right amount of tannins in every animal's brain bar a bison to tan its own skin. And that was used because at the slaughter of an animal or at the death of an animal, then there is a brain there and that's a perfect use of turning that hide before it starts to rot into a material that can be shelter or clothing. A bit gruesome, isn't it? Really? Well, ooh, I did watch it on Instagram the other day of a, of a of craftsperson that I admire doing it from a squirrel that she had found on the road. And I thought it was quite magical seeing something being preserved in that way by really valuing all of the natural substances of that small creature Mm. so yeah leather's been made through brains urine fat smoking uh vegetable tannins until the introduction of chromium in 1800s Chrome can turn a raw material into leather in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Bakers in Devon has a process that takes over a year. God. And so the introduction of chromium really changed the game. There are pros and cons, different characteristics for whether Mm. you're going to tan something with vegetable tannins or whether you are with chrome. And also there's new innovations of sort of hybrids or synthetic vegetable tanning agents Mm. and all these different ways. But essentially, chromium tanning, which is the most widely used steel process, is extremely toxic. We're talking about heavy metals. And when you look at the environmental impacts outside of tanneries where regulations are not as robust as, for example, in the EU, Mm. then you're talking about poisoning groundwater, poisoning rivers with not just chromium, but arsenic and lead. When I was researching Wardrobe Crisis, the book, I wrote about the Ganges River outside of Kampur in India, where a seven-mile stretch was considered biologically dead from all of the effluent from the tanneries. There were over 400 tanneries there, and that's they're basically tipping this gunk into the rivers. And so you've got a toxic mix of cadmium, lead, and chromium, plus all of the God knows what other kinds of chemicals that they're putting in there during that process. And foaming, frothing effluent is covering the scummy surface of the water. The kids are getting sick. It's also poisoning groundwater around the soil around the area as well. And this is a well-known story. I looked up, is the situation getting better? Because when I researched this, it was sort of 2015, 16. There's also a documentary about it. And all I could find about how is it getting better was that there's now additional pollution from microplastics. My main thought with why we chose to use vegetable tanning over chrome is more to do with it being a finite resource that we're mining. And because so many hides and skins are already not being used, I understand why it is necessary to have a process that produces leather in such large quantities and also very quickly, so therefore much cheaper. It also has, as a finished material, uh, properties that are really, really great for things like aviation and trains that are a better solution than using a virgin plastic. But in places that aren't so highly regulated, that is a huge environmental issue. 
we're very fortunate that in the UK there is an incredible tannery in Scotland that has a closed loop system of retaining all of the chromium that goes in and it is then filtered out and used again. All of the the heavy solids and waste materials go into a bioreactor to fuel the tannery. It's really an incredible closed loop system. When they send their leather to be made into chairs and they go on aeroplanes when they're at the end of their life, that scrap leather goes back into the tannery to be turned into power. However, that's only a one case solution. We're a tiny little island. But if you're not taking that leather back at the end of its life, when it biodegrades, that chromium will still remain. And to me, that's the antithesis of what leather is meant to be. Mm. It's meant to go back into the earth that it came from. Alice, when we were preparing this, I told you that I'd always wanted to make this podcast about leather, but it's a difficult subject. People freak out about it. Also, I'd never seen it done. And I met this woman who works for a big luxury house and she had said that she was willing to take me to see some tanneries that are best practice tanneries Mm. certified in Europe and see what it looked like. And she said to me, beware, you know, get ready because it's disgusting. Yeah. I never went, by the way, but you, you said you've seen yeah, some I, of those things in Italy, right? I mean, I mean, at the moment, I have my part in, I take the hides to the tannery we work with, I help lift them into the drums, I make sure that the right ones are going in and the right ones have been stamped or labelled and things. So I've handled a lot of hides and when they get into the tannery and you start going through those wet processes, it does smell and you know, it's not an enjoyable place to be until the tannins get added and then it sort of turns into this really lovely, natural smelling, sort of musty, old yeah. cigar it, room. In the vegetable tanning process. So it's the bit in the middle that we don't like yeah. to, to to get amongst. It's the bit that's disgusting that we try to hide from the consumer. I'm not saying yeah. people are hiding. I think that's wrong, but we, we don't, it's not a conversation we have. No, I think it's, it's the bit that, is hidden because it smells and it doesn't look nice. It's also the bit that it looks most animal. When a hide has still got hair on, you can see what breed an animal is. And it's really, really daunting before it's split up into perhaps sometimes the bellies are cut off or the shoulders are cut off because depending on how they're tanned, they're used in different ways. And so it looks so animal. I was thinking about the imagery that we see around artisan craftsmanship that's always like the man with the bronzed arms with his face not in the picture and then the leather waistcoat and the sort of slightly smoky atmospheric maybe it's shot in black and white looks romantic it's not romantic is it it's not in the way that it you know smells like joe malone and it's all really not that hard work it is hard work but it doesn't mean it should be hidden or discredited or you know judged because it's doing a really important job that not everything can be beautiful and sexy and everyone benefit from it without having Mm. to do the hard like to do the hard work it's I think because many of us have the ability to never go anywhere near a tannery but to go looking selfishes at the lovely bags that it's almost too shocking and I think it's the same sort of paradigm of not wanting to know what the journey has been for you to have the food on your plate but happy to poke holes in it without actually knowing what what that process is so yeah it's it's also really hard work and it also takes a huge amount of expertise it's so skilled it's 
one of the most historic pieces of human craftsmanship that there is to produce leather. And it's sort of turned into this low-valued, ubiquitous commodity that is treated like it's like nothing that important. Like, mm. And that... Annoys you. It does really annoy me because I'm like, just hold your breath. And like, yeah, it's not nice, but... I mean, some facilities are and they're like very, very highly clinical and you'd not have that much knowledge that you were in a tannery. And that's great. But also I had the huge fortune to go and see the tannery, the vegetable tanneries in San Mignato during my final year Where's that? of the in Royal Italy. College in Italy, in Tuscany. And um, it's incredible. It's like a village of tanneries. And they joined a consortium when the sort of boom of, of chromium tanning kicked off to really retain the heritage and the value and the craftsmanship of vegetable tanning because it is it's exactly that every place has its own secret recipe of how they get a specific finish of the leather and it's amazing but it is also you walk into a tannery and there's wall-to-wall pallets of folded hides and you are really confronted with the scale Mm. of life and death Mm. and I think that is something that we are sheltered from until it's packaged in something with a nice Morrison's label on it and so yeah it is quite jarring but I do think that instead of turning everything into synthetic factories with fewer people then we do really need to look at these crafts not as if they're old and done with because they have great value Mm, so interesting okay Alice this is an emotional conversation whenever we're talking about animals what would you say to people who would ask well can leather ever be sustainable can it ever be ethical well I'd say that there is space for a nuanced discussion on how animals are reared if you are able to decouple it from a global commodity chain and have it linked to a system that is for the benefit of ecosystem health and community. I mean, I haven't made a bag in so long because there was no supply chain of which I wanted to use the leather from. But that's not necessarily condemning everything else. But if you can't have those answers, then you can't actually know what's sustainable or not because there's an incredible innovation going on in materials at the moment. But the same questions also are required to be asked just even though an animal's not involved sort of what are the materials going into that and what's its effect on the planet and there's a greater context I think and potential for really positive change and impact on working more closely with farming systems. I see the food I eat and the clothes I wear as a part of a connected system. People always ask me what's more sustainable which is a very difficult question should I pick A or B so they go oh should I get cactus leather or fru mats which is made from apple waste or pinotex which is made from the leaves of the pineapple plant and is a bit leather like but not really but I think one of the main problems is people don't know how they're made and what inputs have gone into them they don't know where it's going to end up when they're done with it and mostly And you have to look into the individual manufacturers, but mostly these leather alternatives are actually bound. So they use synthetic plastic polymers to bind them, apart from the coatings. Mm. So it's not just the, you know, the waste leaf of whatever. It has to be stuck together with something and that is invariably plastic. Yeah. And also I think that stopping waste, accumulation of waste and landfill is really critical because we're at such a 
wasteful civilization, but also what is the system that's produced that waste in the first place? And how's about trying to see if that can be shifted in, in more of a positive way so it's not generating waste instead of utilizing it there? What's the further step back you can go from that, which is sort of the approach that I think needs to be taken to leather in its connections to agriculture is that there is a whole different change that you could do there value the hides greater, have that revenue back to farmers? Can they invest that in a different practice? Can that go towards a certification? Can that help in a, in more of a linked up way and support more of a circular sort of vision that has a meaningful impact? If you are vegan and you don't believe in the rearing or use of animal products at all, then that is completely fair enough and leather is absolutely not for you. However, I would say in anything that is a substitute for that, look very, very closely in what the impact, both economically and ecologically and socially, the impact of that material is also, because I think that a vision or fashion of what materials we should be using is really, really complex. And all of those things need to be looked at. I personally don't want to use leather that I don't know what it's connected to. But I think I've had the privilege of being very exposed to farms and the nuances of raising animals and what their ecological impact is and different levels of animal welfare and land stewardship. So I have, I'm coming from a place of, I don't know, a bias anyway, mm. because I feel quite passionately about supporting those farmers and those practices. And therefore I view those materials differently, not as just an anonymous commodity. So I guess. Well, it's emotional for you too. Yeah. Yeah, I I just, I had to tell the farmers, a group of farmers, that the hide collector couldn't come and collect from them anymore because from the abattoir that they were using, because the worth of the raw material went down, the cost of diesel came up and salt, and so they couldn't afford to come to collect them. So they all had to go into incineration after we'd been working with them for over a year. And for a period of about six weeks, all of those hides had to go into landfill or incineration. I don't know which one they went to. And I felt personally connected to those farmers and also how wasteful and disrespectful that was for those hides not to mm. be used. And so, I don't know, I do, I think the more fine grain you go, the more, the more nuance you see in it. I definitely approached leather from a perspective of a very frustrated designer, mm. not being able to have more of a choice of what I was going to use. I was fed up of going into a fabric store or a merchant's and not being able to get the answers to the questions that I thought that were very, very valid to be asking. Questions like what? Questions like, where did this leather originate from? What was I do want to know what the tannery is and I do want to know what their environmental policy is on their effluent system, but also I want to know why this hide existed in the first place. What was the practice of agriculture that meant that this animal and what breed and how was the farmer treated? And also what were the pressures that he was facing that this leather material uh, is connected to? And also therefore, how can that change for the better? Because I grew up as a part of an agricultural family. My father was a farm vet. I'm surrounded by incredible farmers. Um, in Shropshire. In Shropshire. And so I didn't believe that if I was to type into Google that cows were ruining the planet, 
and the meat industry is that, that there was no nuanced discussion there at all because I knew these people and I knew efforts that were being made to steward their land with ruminant animals for the benefit of biodiversity mm. to sequester carbon and to retain water in the soils and to work to produce food, nutritious food for their communities. I wanted the material that was generated through those systems and you can't quite get that answer from a wholesaler. But also, so you can't get the answer from a wholesaler, which is something we hear repeatedly when we talk about materials and the lack of transparency in the fashion supply chain. But equally, even if you could get the answer, it wouldn't be the answer you wanted because you found that there was almost no possibility of tracing the hide back to an individual animal in the UK. No, and... There's so many reasons for that that are almost nobody's fault other than the fact that we still want handbags that are really cheap. The leather industry has been dealing with bringing value to a glut of hides from a booming meat industry. And so they've been turning them in to leather at a huge scale, which still, according to the Leather Hide Council of America is still resulting in 45% of them not making it into the leather value chain. So they go to waste. So they're going to waste somewhere, whether that's in landfill or whether they've been incinerated. No one, no one knows. It's, it's not anywhere for me to find out. So hang on a minute. You just said that because there's such a rise in meat eating, which we know there is as more sections of society and more countries get more affluent, meat consumption goes up. We know veganism is also going up, but actually meat consumption's rising hugely, presumably then if we don't have the systems in play to collect and use those hides, more of them are getting burnt. Yeah. And the problem that I found from sort of mine and Sarah's perspective of working within the UK and focusing of trying to retain the value of these hides that are coming from the highest levels of stewardship of land and animal welfare is that there's lots of different systems within the meat industry of how you produce something that still goes under the label of beef. But if we're working with a small-scale farm that wants to sell their meat with provenance locally, then they need access to a small-scale or rural abattoir in which to do that because they offer a service called private kill, which means that a farmer can take an animal, have the same animal back, and that animal can be butchered and sold at a local butcher's or directly to their community. So that's how we're able to go to a, let's say, fancy and sustainably minded or perhaps local, you know, a restaurant that's celebrating the slow food movement or the within a hundred yards, everything, hundred yards, no, <laughs> within a hundred miles, miles yeah. everything's been produced. But that's how one of those establishments is able to say, what is on your plate comes from Susan's farm down the road mm -hmm. and was raised in pasture yeah. and using these practices, right? Yeah. And Slaughterhouses have been disappearing in the UK, small and rural ones, at a really, really scary rate, which makes it much harder for a farmer to have that option. It means mm. they have to travel much further, which is, has got animal welfare issues. But also they need to have a market for their meat for mm. them to, in order for them to farm differently. Alice, what do you think if people are listening to this and thinking, private kill, murdering animals, how can you have this conversation? I thought this was a podcast about ethics and sustainability. Thoughts? Well, I come, my, my approach is the belief that animals are integral to the health of ecosystems within the UK that are primarily 
pasture-based landscapes and that having ruminant animals there are a part of our makeup of British pastures. I guess I just believe in the role that animals have in ecosystems. If you farm animals and steward animals in the right way on the right land, um, then they are really integral to the health of a farm and can be really beneficial. And there are a myriad ways that that is done through grazing methods or... The thing is, is there's lots that I've been able to learn from farmers and I visit a lot of farmers and I love hearing them and I don't feel like it's authentic for it to come out of my mouth because I'm not a farmer. I think that more designers should go to farms and will learn from them because I'm never going to say it as eloquently as them. And I'm also not a farmer, but I've seen with my eyes what the effects of many native breed animals are and that a, that there is a nuanced way of farming. And it's really changing within the UK and it's mm. gaining traction of farmers working in a different way, but you have to have a community engagement that isn't the first thing saying it's death and it's murder because you don't also have to eat them, but to have land... As in you could raise sheep as in, for a renewable resource of wool. No, what I mean is that if you only want to eat vegetables or you want to have a plant-based diet, then that's absolutely fine. But I don't believe in the use of then synthetic and nitrogen fertilizers to be what kills the soil at all the animals that are around it you need to have or ideally you'd have the manure and fertilizer that comes from an ruminant animal doesn't mean you need to eat them but they need to exist on this planet it's also i think you and i mm. live in a state of separation where you go to the supermarket and you buy this weird if you eat meat you can buy this weird meat which looks like nothing to do with an animal, like two chicken breasts look like jelly in a polystyrene tray. Now, I know this is the worst case scenario. I'm not saying you're all doing it, but you can do it. Wrapped in cling film, you've got no idea of the connection or it's very hard, you know, but it's very hard to imagine the real connection between the bird and yeah. what you're seeing. And also, hands up, if you eat meat and you're listening to this, do put your hand up at home, <laughs> if you would be happy to wring the neck of a chicken or chop its head off. And yet, are you happy to buy the chicken portioned into clinically, I don't know, weird looking little sort of pristine packages that you can then stick in your Thai curry. We have such a disconnect. We just don't understand the process. And that makes all of this unpalatable. We get really emotional about it. And then we're also so disconnected that we don't even know what it means. Yeah. And also I think then farmers get the flack and a huge level of criticism of how they produce food. But actually it's because we don't spend as much money as we used to do on our food milk's cheaper than a pint like like a pint of beer it's a pint yeah, yeah milk's actually cheaper, a lot cheaper it's cheaper than a pint of beer mm. and that's not okay and those farmers don't want to be doing those things so my long answer is that I'm not the person to answer the question at length of why animals are integral to our ecosystems but I would urge everybody to go and learn more about what is going on their plates mm. and also what is what fibers are going on their body. Okay, how much is leather a byproduct of the meat industry? I think it's a really problematic word and I think it's a, a really byproduct. Yeah, byproduct because it negates responsibility. 
For instance, we're working with a small and rural abattoir in the UK at the moment to keep the traceability of the hides from pasture for life farmers that use it. And um, many of these farmers then take the meat back and sell it locally. And this hide is meant to then join in the leather value chain. It's for the abattoir to be able to sell on that helps the viability of their business. That profit is a part of their margin for paying their staff and, and having a business the fifth quarter. Um, What's the fifth quarter? So the fifth quarter is made up of the offal, bones, blood, fat and hide. And they are parts of the animal that perhaps the farmer isn't getting back because the farmers raised the animal for meat and they're of lesser value or need to be turned into a different product that mm. perhaps a farmer doesn't have the capabilities to use. And are those products often thrown away? I mean, just coming back to the food industry, remember the kind of rise of the nose to tail mm. eating movement that mm. would encourage people to be like, don't waste this. I think where the the byproduct argument or discussion gets difficult is when you see abattoirs that sort of many hundreds of animals a day, there is a level of economy of scale and vertical integration there that is much more beneficial than a small and rural, rural abattoir who only has 10 hides or less than that perhaps mm. a day. Mm. That raw material is given the same value globally. Mm. So currently they're I think they're about eight to 10 pounds a hide, just from the best of my knowledge. And the cost of petrol and diesel have gone up, the cost of salt's gone up, the cost of people's time's gone up. To get that hide from an abattoir into a place where it can be salted to preserve it and then shipped and sent to a tannery, there's a lot more cost incurred if you are at a lower volume and further away. Coming back to that question of do we think that uh, leather is a byproduct of the meat industry, I do have some research here which I'm going to share with you because it comes from Alden Wicker on EcoCult. She's a formidable researcher. And I'm always asked this question and I have to say I've never really known. So here you are. I'm going to read it out to you. We'll share a link so you can read this stuff. But she's basically like, if it's a byproduct, that means animals are raised for meat and the leather is extra, obviously. This is from an American perspective. Ranchers will sell it if they can because then they'll take any bit of extra income and don't like to see anything wasted. If they can't sell it, however, they will throw it away or burn it. So that's why we say byproduct to yep. make us feel better about using waste. And then Alden Wicker writes, obviously it would be very wasteful and very polluting to throw this away. But in 1992, cow skins in the US represented 6 to 8% of a dead animal's value. Since then, with the rise of vegan materials and everybody wearing more sneakers and leather shoes than leather shoes, leather prices have plummeted. And she also says that at the same time as demand for leather in general has fallen, there's been a spike in demand for scarcer things such as fine calf or lamb's leather. So her point is, yes, you could ask, you could say it was a byproduct, but no one's getting rich off this. It was six to eight percent of the animal's value, and the value is generally going down. Yeah. So it, no one's it, farming it, cows it, for the skin. Abs absolutely no way. It makes up currently, according to Leather UK, it makes up one to two percent of the total value of an animal. Oh, wow. Hides used to be worth 60 pounds in the UK and now they're either 10 or eight or it's more than that to yeah. go and get them. So they're in the bin. Wow. So the term byproduct by its definition means that it's something created in an act of destroying something else. And it's an ancillary thing that's happened. You said to me before, 
I'd rather look at it as a co-product. It's a shame to say it's just something that happened and the act of destroying something. If it can be a co-product of a regenerative system in many different ways, then that really deserves a label and that value really needs to be retained to strengthen that system. I didn't work with leather when I was at the Royal College because it was a raw material that was coming from a farming community that I grew up around that I believed in. Tell us then about what you did when you were at RCA, so the Royal College of Arts. I'd studied women's wear for a while and got a little bit um, dis, sort of, um, I just didn't really want to have to create ideas and collections season 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 and I thought if I created something with function and longevity and something you had to use every day it would kind of I don't know appease me more <laughs> as a designer which I haven't that's no logic because I've still never owned a handbag in my life I only have you've a never owned a handbag I know so bad I vowed that well like, I came this far now so I thought well I can only ever have a handbag when I've made one myself and I've not got round to it yet so I have the <laughs> ugliest backpack it's awful. Um, but I got to the Royal College and decided I was going to do accessories. And I'd been really interested in material innovation. I didn't get to leather until nearly the end of my first year. And then just really couldn't get my head around the material. And it was the idea that I needed to create sort of eight to ten pieces in order to get a degree and just drawing them and deciding what they were felt really arbitrary and so I decided that if I was going to create a collection I would work with any of the materials that were yielded from one animal one sheep yeah and so I thought that that would help me as a designer understand the raw materials I'm working with and the place they came from and the animal they came from and also then dictate the design I was choosing to create. Quite unusual. Yeah, it was also a headache. <laughs> a but headache. did anyone around you do such similar things or not? Um, well, we were really encouraged at the RCA. Our head of programme, Zoe Broach, is one. Oh, is yes. Amazing. The most incredible person I've ever met and she was very very encouraging for us to work in a way that didn't mean that our end of year show would be this you know perfect representation of a polished student but more would leave us thinking about what it meant to be a fashion designer and that meant more maybe in a broader context than um, yeah. making the perfect handbag. So you decided that you would use one sheep in order to make what? Um, so I created a handbag, a little card wallet, a pair of shoes. I then used the waist leather and bonded them to make the soles of the shoes. We then spun the wool to make a pair of gloves. And then it took a further year to make a jumper from the wool also. Did you buy a sheep? I followed the sheep from my local farmer. So all of the raw materials were in my possession. And then all of the meat was turned into burgers for the launch of the collection. And um, we served them when the collection was shown. It's actually, so I do find this confronting because I wanted to say, but did you know this sheep? And then when you start to be that intimate with the process and get down to its one sheep, do you feel guilty about that one sheep because you know that sheep? Or do you feel that like you're honouring that sheep because you've created this 
completely wasteless collection? I was hoping for the latter. Yeah, I was trying to figure out. I think lots of young designers or people going through university are faced with this existential crisis of how to be a designer when the world's on fire and is fashion even relevant and should we all just go home and... That's what I really felt at university and it was really, really stifling. And I felt to the point where I was like, I don't even know where to start here. And yeah, I definitely did kind of think, well, I want to know what decisions I make because I want to follow how Mm. be connected to them and have that direct my choices. And so I didn't really, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I thought that was a way to reconnect me to what I was. What did you learn from it? Um... I learned from it that I knew absolutely nothing. I was shocked at how disconnected the two were. I remember that I showed the collection, the burgers came out, and then everybody was meant to move on to a different part of the show. And the first year students were helping. One of them came up to me and they were like, Alice, Alice, I'm so sorry. A lady came up to me and she was really furious. She said that she was really offended by your presentation because um, she doesn't eat meat. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't, want to you know be directly offensive to anybody and that was definitely not my intention and then the student goes and I was a bit shocked because she was wearing Margiela tabby shoes and I just thought you know that, that the ones with the toes yeah in. with them with the leather. toes and I was like leather and I just thought oh, this is so interesting yeah. I more found from it that I was like this is fascinating like we really have this huge separation between materials material culture and agriculture and Mm. sort of do we want to keep that separation and call it you know label a meat industry a meat industry without thinking about like who are these farmers that are stewarding land that are producing food and what are these animals and what does this therefore mean in terms of what I wear and how I work and what are these networks that are connecting the two and so it, it felt super uncomfortable at many times throughout it but I kind of thought that it made a lot of sense to me. The V&A acquired that collection, is that right? Yeah, they did. What I found that when I finished the sheep collection was that I just had so many questions. And actually I'd graduated after all this learning. I had no access to any material. I had no idea, do I just go and join a company and still have all these things like swirling around? Or do I try and understand the industry a bit more? And 69% of all leather is made from bovine animals or cattle. My father was a farm vet and he had a small herd of longhorn cattle and longhorns are a really ancient native breed to Long the UK. Long hair as well. So they have big yes, horns I've that like them. swoop into their face and they sort of look bonnet-like, their horns, and they're really majestic, beautiful animals. And um, they've been around since sort of the medieval times in the UK and they're very popular on poor grasslands because they keep condition and they they're really positive low input farm animals basically and um i hadn't realized that after my dad passed away the cattle had gone to a local farmer to me and he still had them and so my uncle was like well I'll take you to meet him and you can see them and ask him how he farms and try and understand it a bit more and that's what I did. Was it emotional? Yeah it was well yeah it was and also because they are such beautiful creatures and we went in August and it was just a stunning day and the part of the countryside where this farm is it's a third generation farm 
and it's just it was it was beautiful like it was kind of um yeah it was a bit of a moment and um and I asked him after a couple of weeks of going back to his and trying to just learn a bit more and he said he takes two of his steers to the avatar every six months and this time I asked can I follow one and can I buy it <laughs> and so I bought Bullock 374 from him and went with him to the local slaughterhouse realized that they didn't have a hide collector all of their hides were going into incineration I think that's what the fashion industry has a role in not just in turning something into something beautiful but designing the systems behind it that result in clothing the closer we keep that link together and keep that value retained then a there's a better story to communicate to people and educate people and also lots of different people along that chain rely on one another if we didn't have access to a tannery which the tannery that we're blessed to be able to work with had never contracted with a business before before us and directly directly before for us to be able to take the hides that we'd collected to their tannery if we didn't have the finishes that we we are able to work with which is the third generation family with incredible expertise then we would have no way to turn the materials in sort of a mid-stage in no way of turning it into any material that could compete with other materials that people are using and there'd be no way of us returning back to those farms and offering them money for their hides. I mean, we, we don't have stats on how big the industry is in the UK. You told me before that they're generally, it's so small that generally it's lumped in with European or EU figures. But we do know, as you've said, that lots of abattoirs are closing and that you could probably tell me uh, how many of the finishers and tanneries exist in England and Scotland and Wales. But... 23. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Obviously, there's huge pressure on them because people aren't producing it here. It's more expensive. Yeah. You're buying it from unknown wholesaler or from a wholesaler who doesn't really know where it comes from. Yeah. And what we're wanting to do at the moment also in that it's an incredibly historic industry here. The tannery that we're working with has been there since 1886. And the third generation finishers that we're working with has an unbelievable depth of knowledge that we'll lose if... We have to export everything we're working with. And also you have less you have less opportunity to educate yourself or ask the questions that are actually going to make a difference in the material that mm. you're producing. We're very lucky in that we're going from the farms all the way through to the finished leather and being able to really look under the microscope of every process that we're going through and why, why it results in a leather that looks differently or why, why a chemical is being used and questioning what's the other option? And so we've been very fortunate in that we've got a grant from the Business of Fashion, Textiles and Technology to be able to create new ways of finishing our leather that is using materials that are regional, that results in a biodegradable leather and, and is really producing a material that echoes the place it came from rather than a mm. uh, global commodity that can go around the world a couple of times before it's even turned into a handbag I think being able to keep things connected between a farm between an abattoir between a tannery and retain that value into it being into a product until it is potentially you know no longer of use but it's not going to leave a scar anywhere then that to me is justifies why you're making fashion in the first place 
We hear different luxury companies making these commitments to raw material sourcing is changing, but there's got to be work done on the ground mm. to have new systems created to produce that. Or to invest in the existing ones before they disappear. We were talking about exactly. before how at this conference that we met at, Future Fashion Expo, where they have this wonderful talk series, lots of brands are talking about their goals, but many brands, not just there, but everywhere, admit that they have a massive chunk that they don't know how they're going to get there. Like our 2030 goals are this, we know how we're going to get 20% of the way there. And let's just hope that some innovation comes before the yeah. deadline. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because there's been a lot of looking at the top down of what's the current material sources going on and going down that supply chain to try and pull out something that has provenance that they can talk about. But in my opinion, we need to be working from the farm forward and those farming cooperatives and certification bodies that are doing that work on the ground to really cultivate change within the industry to have to be able to bring more regenerative and sustainable practices. And in my opinion, leather is directly connected to animal agriculture. And if we want it to be a more regenerative approach, then we need to be working behind those farmers and what systems are integral to them, i.e. their abattoirs and their networks. Let's finish on what's stopping brands. You started by telling us about different tanning processes. You're using vegetable tanning. It's a different feel, a different look. This doesn't perform in the same way as all of this junk that we import without knowing where it comes from that makes our kind of perfect lime green shiny shoes. Yeah, that's definitely where we're at at the moment is that we are building these really great relationships and, and networks. And then when we get to the leather as a finished material which has had so much incredible innovation around it for so long to turn it into this high performing material whether it can be water resistant or stain resistant or looks like it comes off a roll when it doesn't and it looks like it's plastic it, when it, it's not yeah although it might be because it might have plastic coating yeah. on the spot and it's got yeah that's really difficult because we have this performance expectation around materials now that doesn't align to some goals. We were talking to somebody who works in leather testing and said that when they do biodegradability tests, the thing that often remains is the thin film that has been applied on top of the leather. Which I didn't know is generally what? It's made up of sort of different polyurethanes or bio-PUs and resins and things. even when you buy a leather bag though because this is what people don't know they know that if they buy the vegan faux leather leather alternative that it is likely bound with polymers but people don't know that they buy a luxury bag from wherever and that it's leather but in fact it's got this plastic stuff on top but the problem is is they wouldn't buy it if it didn't the hides that we're working with the animals have been living out on land, out on pasture. They've rubbed up against hawthorn hedgerows. They've been bitten. Some of them spend some of their time in woodlands. They do not come out looking perfect, much like my elbows are scarred and so are my knees because I was a rural child. But 
there is a different grading process that goes on in the leather industry because it is labelled as simply a byproduct. So you can grade out hides based on their imperfections because when they enter a leather supply chain, there's a whole different criteria for quality. It's not agricultural origin, it's how perfect it looks. And the two don't necessarily coincide. So if we want to change sourcing so that by 2030 those raw materials are coming from regenerative systems then we also need to look at how we are going to perceive value and beauty in a leather that isn't so highly manipulated that it just sort of looks fake looks fake but also that's just an expectation now and and the conversation is you know we need to take our customers on a journey which I think is really really important but we need some people to jump in and get going on that I think we all have enough very highly manipulated handbags so you don't you've only got a rucksack (laughs) I could really I could really do (laughs) everybody but me ironically um that's the thing the a perception of beauty and value in something that is not perfect because leather doesn't come off a roll and we we also want to work with it as if it does but hides have a neck a back and a belly and the way that you choose to produce a product also depends on where you cut it from a hide there's huge value to taking the grain off a piece of leather spraying a polyurethane and plating it because it means you get a great yield from that leather but a great yield to make lots more product perhaps that could be flipped on its head and actually value the animal and the practices that it's come from but it does require I think a different design shift. What's plating? So plating is this incredible machine that is huge and you put a piece of leather in and there are 10 million different types of plates that have everything from um, a tiny dot to a crocodile print and they go in and it's really hot and it gets pressed down and it turns it into but you told me this the other day and that's why I was like gonna ask you what do we not know about a handbag when you see that grain on a bag it's frequently not really the grain oh you're shaking your head like it's never the grain um they shave it off whatever's there and then they smooth it out and finish it and mess around with it and add PU and whatever else and then they stamp it back in yeah I mean Sarah and I have been trying to think for so long of how what's the similar comparison of something that imitates itself but that's what it's also what people want so that's really difficult because I didn't realize that for a very very long time until hides come out the tannery and then actually there's only those sort of grain marks at the belly or where the fiber structure is broken up to let those gaps in it's so incredibly uniform that I think that's an interesting thing when you start looking at things and you Mm. go it's so uniform but now also they make but I don't mean for it to be a criticism I don't know I think similarly to farmers getting so much flack from people And the leather industry does too. I mean, I think I say these things now, but I catch myself saying them because I work face to face with people in the industry that are so passionate, have so much integrity. I'm absolutely honored to be able to work with them. And the reason they are doing things is because they're asked, they're asked by companies, they're asked by brands and the brands feel like they're being asked by their customers and they want to answer to those customers because they get sales. So 
there needs to be a new direction being sent into those industries for them to be able to offer something different because every single other worker I talk to goes, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have to cover it in this. I don't want to. They have such, they marvel at the material as others do of what it is and don't want to cover it in plastic, but they're being asked to. And so that's why I'm just sort of hesitant to uh, sort of condemn methods that they have to do to turn it Mm. into something Mm. so large companies can sell it for thousands because the the finishers aren't making that huge markup on putting that grain on. I was talking to somebody who works in testing leather for biodegradability, ecotoxicity, because they're things that things that we're looking into and we were talking about the finishing conundrum because that is something that goes from leather being leather and leather being a highly luxurious material that we've all sort of come to know but to what extent can you highly manipulate a leather and it still be called it and uh, it turns out that it has to be 0.15 millimeter or less of finishing on top of the leather for it to still be deemed leather. And it cannot exceed 30% of the overall thickness of the leather, which is a tremendous amount of its substance. Isn't it? Which means that then brands could be, or producers could be, making sure it's 25% and then still leather. I think there are plenty of places that push the boundary on how close they can get to that 30%. So how biodegradable is the leather that you work with? Could I bury it in the garden and it would disappear? Or does it depend on, okay, you're not using plastic finishings, but what about dyes? So how biodegradable is it? So it takes a lot longer for vegetable tan leather to degrade than chrome tan leather. But To degrade. To degrade, to like disappear, to like go down because it's made in a way that it's not meant to like you've turned it into this material that can last hundreds of years basically it can last thousands of years that's why that ice man has still got his boots on kind of thing so it's the wrong question so we're doing tests for the biodegradability of our leather but also the ecotoxicity of it so when that's it does biodegrade yeah. what's it going to leave behind and that to me is the really important one that was a really difficult part for us going through this process because we were able to work with the farms, work with the tanneries, but we're still working with the existing infrastructures of what is here in the UK, which is another reason why it is important to support businesses and, and engage because then you can ask more questions and also we can have more advanced methods and more sustainable methods in tanneries and finishes. So we're doing work at the moment so that our applications result in a biodegradable leather that is not toxic. Alice, thank you very much for talking about these topics with us. I thought it was absolutely riveting. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you.